Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Jonathan L. Zimmerman. He is the Judy and Howard Berkowitz professor at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education and one of America's leading voices on the history of education in the United States. One of the things that John writes about, the main thing John writes about, is the role of the public schools in teaching our children about controversial topics. He's written or co-written eight books on this theme in different variations. And the reason I thought it would be timely to bring John on in the context of everything that's going on in the public schools with arguments over parents' rights, transgender issues, especially critical race theory, is that he has recently republished his book, Who's America?, which is a history of the culture wars in the public schools. And, you know, a consistent theme of John's work, appropriate for a podcast about trying to reestablish consensus in this country, is that he is very mindful of the excesses that can be committed on all sides in this area. And he has a great deal of faith, actually, more faith than a lot of people, to be very honest, in the ability of students themselves, if we simply trust them with information to get at, uh, you know, what their truth or the truth or a sustainable level of consensus is on their own. I think if John in his work has stood for anything, it is the power of students themselves to get to the answers that work for them and work for the country. And so on that note, I want to welcome Professor Jonathan Zimmerman to the podcast. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to be here. So, you know, I wanted to jump in on a really fresh topic, which is this incident that occurred in your own profession where James Sweet, who's the uh, president of the American Historical Association, published a, a critique of some trends in the history biz that he found concerning, including a critique of the 1619 Project and the idea that perhaps present-day ideology was kind of infecting historical study. And then he was denounced by a number of commenters on this and apologized for his uh, writing and said that he had done harm. And you wrote a column that really lamented that apology. And I'd like to ask you to sort of give us a little uh, precy of what you found so troubling about that. Well, what I found troubling about the apology was that Jim Sweet, who incidentally I don't know, but whose work I know, didn't actually address the substance of any of the critiques of his column. I think the column and the critiques raise some pretty interesting and fundamental questions around what historians do. Uh, the column raised the specter of presentism, which in historian speak means imposing your own present day views upon the past. And this isn't the first time we've been around this bend. And yet, in Sweet's apology, he addressed none of that. Instead, what he said was that his column, as you noted, actually harmed readers, and he apologized for that. And I felt this was a depressing and missed opportunity, a missed opportunity to actually engage the issues that came up, but I think also a characteristic one for our time, insofar as increasingly 
we're psychologizing politics, as I've written elsewhere. And what that means is we're phrasing political claims in psychological terms. So if you don't agree with Jim Sweet's column, or if Jim Sweet indeed apologized for that column, you don't have to cite chapter and verse about why you disagree. You just say that it injured you in some way. And this is a cul-de-sac. I mean, it's an intellectual cul-de-sac. Look, some of your listeners might feel harmed by what I'm saying right now. I don't know who they are or how they feel. And if they were to tell me that they felt harmed, I would have essentially one thing to say to them. I'm sorry. And I would be. I'm not in this world to harm people. Um, Perhaps I could ask them a little more about why they felt harmed. But here's the larger point. I couldn't deny that they were harmed. I can't look into their soul and make that claim. When I give this rap to my undergrads about this impossible cul-de-sac, they'll often say that I'm denying their feelings. But actually, Chuck, it's precisely the opposite. That is, it's precisely the undeniability of their feelings that make feelings such a poor venue for discussion. There's another implication of this apology. And as you say, it's it's basis in a, a putative harm that was caused by his words. And that is the sort of deterrent effect it may have. I mean, James Sweet is a tenured professor. He has that protection. He's a very prominent man in his field. And it should say, it should be said, you know, a specialist in the history of the slave trade, transatlantic slave trade and African-American history. And it suggests, and this, of course, is very relevant to the topic we're going to get into a little bit further on. It, it suggests that there's great potential risk or discomfort that can attend a person who uh, says something that without even intending it, that is controversial. And in that way, I just wonder if I I found myself sort of faulting him for apologizing in a way, like sort of just not standing up more forthrightly for his right to say what was on his mind. No, I agree with you 100%. And again, you know, I think there are many fair-minded critiques of what Jim Sweet said. I mean, I would say that about almost any column. But rather than engaging those critiques, or, you know, giving us giving ground here, not giving ground there. You know, to me, that's what academic life is or should be. But I think, Chuck, to your point, episodes like this make that process increasingly unlikely because, again, nobody wants to cause harm. And I should add, nobody wants to be vilified like Jim Sweet was on Twitter. And so I think that they will actually bite their tongues and It's not just I that think that we have a considerable body of survey research now about both students and faculty doing that. And I should just say that I think that that is anathema to what I consider the academic project. The academic project requires all of us to speak our minds and try to make the best case we can for what we think. And hopefully what that does is it helps all of us together come to a better understanding of the world. If instead of that, what we're doing is saying, gee, I better not write or say this because somebody's going to cancel me on Twitter, I think it's game over. I wanted to ask your view about the potential connection or perhaps the non-connection between this phenomenon that we're talking about in the sweet case, and it could be generalized because there are others similar to it. What's the connection between that sort of a trend and the fact reported in my own newspaper not too long ago, that history is rapidly declining as an undergraduate major. The humanities in general are down. 
But history had the fifth largest decline of any of the majors offered to college students in the last or in the 10 years between 2011 and 2021. It's, I think it's fifth from the bottom now in terms of what people major in. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons for that. But I sometimes wonder if people aren't steering clear of history specifically and the humanities in general precisely because they want to avoid a controversy like this. I, I think that there's some evidence that that's true, what you just said. Obviously, that's not the only factor, right? I mean, the cost of higher ed and the desire for people to get out of debt is all connected to this as well, because people perceive, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly, that something like CompSci is going to help them work out of debt better than a history degree. So there are many factors behind this, Chuck, but I think you've absolutely identified one of them. In some ways, the humanities that dug its own grave, and others not, right? It's not our fault that you know uh, states stopped subsidizing public education in a very real way, and tuition went sky high and all that. That's outside of our can. But within our can, I think, is the fact that humanities have become extremely doctrinaire. I think the students absolutely sense that. And I think that some students are extremely wary of going into courses where they perceive that either the faculty or students are demanding a certain kind of loyalty oath from them. So let's shift gears a little bit to the K through 12 public school arena about which you've written so often and so thoughtfully. You're well aware of the fact that the whole issue of indoctrinating our students, imposing on them critical race theory, a whole bunch of gender identity uh, indoctrination, this has all become fodder for politicians like Ron DeSantis in Florida. And, you know, I think our previous couple of questions have, have indicated there is, as in all political movements, there is a kernel of truth in that which is being seized upon. And yet, I think there are broader dangers in this sort of backlash, which could lead and has led to the banning of certain materials from school libraries, very conflictive relationships between factions of parents at school boards and so on. Situate, if you would, this contemporary controversy in, say, the last 40, 50 years and kind of what it tells us about the distance we've traveled in the culture wars. Well, here's where I think the big changes occurred. You know, when I wrote the first edition of this book, I wrote it in the late 90s because it came out in 2002. And what I said very, very briefly, Chuck, was that the religion wars have no solution and the history wars have the wrong one. By the religion wars at that time, I meant school prayer, uh, Bible reading as a sacramental event, evolution creation and sex ed insofar as it was inflected by uh, religion, which that debate often was. When I say that no solution, what I meant was it just struck me that these religious debates, they involved incommensurate claims, right? I mean, either he was the savior or he wasn't, either sex ed or either sex outside of straight marriage is a sin or it isn't. I didn't really think that there was any solution to those. Meanwhile, the history wars, insofar as we had fought them up until that time, had the wrong solution. They had the wrong solution insofar as whenever there was a controversy, we just added another group to the same story. So there was a time, indeed, a time when you and I were alive, uh, young children in this country, where American history textbooks, for example, describe the institution of slavery as kind of this beneficent idea that, that very nice white people developed to civilize savage Africans. That's not the case anymore. That's not what the textbooks say. And most of all, they're not just about white men. 
anyone who says that just hasn't looked at one. They were, of course, but now they're not. But the problem I argued back in 2002 was that any time a dispute arose, we just added another group to the same story, which was why the textbooks became like 800 pages long. But the title of the book was the same, Rise of the American Nation, Quest for Liberty. And as Jim Lowen, who unfortunately died recently, uh, once quipped, the physics tech book is not called Triumph of the Atom, right? Rise <laughs> of the Periodic Table. And so, you know, I thought it was fantastic that, uh, to use contemporary language, that we were including all these new groups. But the problem was we weren't asking the question of what happens to the broader narrative when you include. So that was 2002. Well, Chuck, be careful for what you wish for. Because now, I think in the broader public sphere, and I want to underscore that because this is largely not happening, our schools themselves, we are having that debate. You know, were we born in liberty and freedom, as you and I were taught, or were we born in slavery and oppression? I mean, that's the question that the 1619 Project asks. So we are actually having that debate, although we don't, I think, have the vocabulary or the will to uh, actually have it in our schools. On the religion side, by the way, I was completely wrong. The religion wars have radically cooled. When was the last time you read or reported on a debate about evolution and creation in a school district? Incidentally, those debates do occur, and I note them in my book, but in a very minor key. Ditto for school prayer, ditto for Bible reading, even sex ed has become radically less controversial. And when it is controversial, when it is opposed, it's generally not opposed in religious terms. So the religion wars largely went away, not entirely. And the reasons for that, I think, are multifold, but one of them is the country got radically less religious. Yes. In the past 20 years, we think that uh, both uh, church, mosque, synagogue attendance and so-called uh, um, denominational affiliation has gone down 20%, which is the greatest decline in American history. We're not like Western Europe yet, but we're moving in that direction. And also, with respect to schools, the most orthodox believers largely exempted themselves from the public schools. See the rise of Christian academies and especially homeschooling. But here's the thing, and this is where I think a lot of people, a lot of liberals like myself, have to eat some crow. One of the stories we told for a very long time was that when the country secularized, it would become more tolerant. It would become more reasonable. People would be more accepting of difference. Chuck, I would argue the past 20 years show exactly the opposite. The country did get less religious. It didn't, quote, secularize, but it moved in a more secular direction. And also, in every way that we can measure, we've become more intolerant um, of each yeah. other and of our differences. And I think, you know, uh, Shai Hamdi and others have written about this. I think red and blue have in some ways become quasi-religious identities. And now we're operating in some way like those sort of ironclad, no compromise religious identities that I described earlier. So that's where I think we are. The religion wars have cooled, and now the history wars are all around us. But to the point you were making at the very beginning, they're largely not in our schools. They're swirling around in the public sphere. But let me just put my own cards on the table. If I were king, and we don't have enough time this morning to enumerate all the reasons that will not happen. But if I were, every <laughs> high school kid, every high school kid would get the 1619 Project and the state-approved textbook. And the teacher would just say, okay, let's start with Columbus. Uh, what does 1619 say? What does your textbook say? Let's do the American Revolution. What does 1619 Project say? What does your textbook say? Um, uh, I should emphasize that there are teachers who do exercises like this, and I try to describe and praise them in my book, but they too are in a small minority. People want their side to win, not because they want multiple sides presented. 
Well, I think you have a, a clever line in your book where one of your, I think it's one of your students or one of saying yeah. there is no organization called Parents for Hearing All Sides in the Classroom. Exactly, exactly. You know, people don't walk around with posters saying, you know, more nuance, more nuance, you know, more discussion, <laughs> more dialogue. You don't see that on a protest poster. Well, there is a, a deep within this argument is an argument about the very legitimacy of the United States and whether it was, as you suggest, either founded in liberty or founded in oppression makes a huge amount of difference to how Correct. people feel about their country. As you're well aware, there's that concept of a usable past and every nation needs one to help establish its coherence and stability. And I wonder if in that sense, uh, this is this this argument that we're now engaged in is something that even can be resolved through discussion and through the kind of open minded and open ended education you're talking about, or whether it is really the, the kind of emergence of a profound fault line that's, you know, pretty dangerous. Well, you know, look, I'll say two things. I think it can, and I think we have evidence that it can, because like I said earlier, people have done it. So, you know, uh, listeners who doubt this, they should look at the recent book by Robert Cohen and Sonia Morrow about Howard Zinn. And I should tell you, it's not about Howard Zinn, because that story has been written many times. It's actually about how Howard Zinn has been taught in schools, because he has been, and particularly, you know, people's history of the United States. Well, his personal papers, he died a few years ago, they're now available at the Tamament Library at NYU, and Robbie and Sonia got into, uh, um, you know, the papers. And I should mention that Robbie's a friend and former colleague. Anyway, what they found were a handful of teachers doing exactly what I just described, like, okay, let's look at a chapter in people's history about the American Revolution. Let's look at your textbook. But best of all, in Zinn's papers, they found letters from students to Howard Zinn that the teachers had often encouraged the students to write to Zinn and begin dialogues with him, and they did. And a couple things emerged from those letters. The first is that a lot of the students took issue with Zinn, which I think is really important to note. Because so many times on all sides of debates like this, people assume that if you're exposed to a certain argument, it's like a virus, right? And it takes over your bloodstream. This patronizes our young people and our teachers, I might add, because a lot of people took issue with Zen. But then a lot of them wrote things like, you know, until I read your book and the state-approved textbook, I didn't even know what history was, right? I thought history was yes. just kind of a monument between a set of covers, as David Taya called the textbook, right? Here it is. Here's a monument between covers. Um, so uh, to your question, Tuck, first of all, I would say that it does happen. And um, when it does, we also have evidence that students love it. See, here's the thing. They know we disagree along the axes you just described. We just don't have the courage to admit it when they're in the room. The kids know it. Of course they know it. It's all around them. Right. But what they don't have are schools that will help them engage in those dialogues. So we have evidence that it happens. But I think to your question, we also have to be pretty sober about it because, you know, how many people actually want it? See, the kind of exercise I just described, Chuck, I call democratic education with a small d. But the, the question that's hounded me throughout my career that I've never answered is what if it turns out that the demos you know, like those pesky citizens. What if it turns out they don't <laughs> actually want it? 
Is it even democratic then? And I, I still don't have a good answer for it. I don't think you're going to get one, John, because <laughs> that uh, that has uh, haunted democratic theorists since uh, since day one yeah. of democracy. What happens when the people turn against the ideals themselves? I mean, I just want to follow up on your point about religion because I think it needs an. You, you're you're undoubtedly right that the society is steadily secularizing, and that issues like prayer in the schools have been, for all intents and purposes settled. But I think it needs an asterisk with respect to gender and particularly the issue of transgender uh, or mm -hmm. education about transgenderism in the, the schools, which is being framed by those who are opposing certain things being taught as a defense of their kind of religious objection. But I think actually goes to something different, which is a sense of reality. I think a lot of people are bridling at the idea that they, you know, that a person who is uh, physically a male or has male genitalia can can indeed must be addressed as a female or as a woman or as a girl. And I think this is an incredibly sensitive area because in a funny way, even though it's being framed as a religious issue, it goes well beyond that into a sense that people, many people, including people who are otherwise, you know, not bigoted people and, and want to be fair minded, just struggle with that concept. And I wonder if you think that has, you know, where that's going to lead and if there's any possible kind of uh, meeting point for the contending parties on that in the public schools. Right. Well, well, here's the thing. You know, I have a slightly different take here, Chuck, because frankly, I've been struck by how little religious rhetoric has inflected this issue compared to what you would have expected in earlier eras. Right. So when I first started studying sex ed, looking in the 50s and 60s, right, a lot of people that are opposing sex ed said things like, you know, masturbation is a sin before God, you know, and, and so and so. So you've heard some of that with respect to the trans issue, but I haven't heard Greg Abbott or, or Ron DeSantis say that. I mean, obviously, right, they've taken the lead in trying to promote certain sorts of legislation to, for example, like prevent trans kids from competing in sports in the gender that they identify with or restrict surgeries in different ways. But I haven't heard any either of them reference God. I think on your second point, you're closer to what's happening, which is it's just about our sense of reality, right? I mean. Obviously, for a lot of the objectors here, religion is going to inflect what they think. But I've been struck by how rarely religion actually enters into the argument. I think there are many reasons for that. I think they correctly perceive that people are less religious. And also, you know, if I say this is a sin against God, that's pretty unlikely to persuade anybody that doesn't necessarily share my religious faith, right? Um, I don't think those arguments work that well either. So I think they've gone for different kinds of arguments at this point, which I think are closer to what you were talking about, just their sort of sense of reality of what's common sense. And also, I think there's a language of rights that infuses all of this, of course, right, on both sides, right? Yeah. Trans people think they have a right to use certain bathrooms that, you know, correspond to their gender, ident gender identity. Other people saying, no, you know, we have a right to prevent that. And I guess, you know, to come back to your very original point about Jim Sweet, I would say that what troubles me most about this issue is how difficult it has been for us to sustain a conversation about it and how much evidence we have, again, 
that people aren't really engaging because they're afraid. So I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, where this has been an extremely heated question because uh, your listeners have probably read, you know, we had a swimmer who's a trans woman uh, who was winning all sorts of competitions, competing, of course, as a woman, which is how she identifies. And there were all sorts of, of objections to that. And, you know, I wrote a column about this saying, I think this is a hugely difficult question. and I'm not sure myself of the answer. And I would say I'm still not. But here's what I do know. Here's what I am sure about. We won't get a good answer if we can't honestly and fully discuss the question. And what I pointed out in my column was all this evidence that especially students at Penn were afraid to say what they thought. In fact, they were giving interviews to journalists not giving their names. And yeah. again, this strikes me as an enormous problem that transcends the trans issue, right? And gets back to your original point, which is we can't come to a better understanding of the trans issue or of anything if we're afraid to speak our minds. Well, not to quarrel or quibble, but when I was talking about the religious aspect of the, the sort of resistance, if you want to call it that, to transgender rights in the schools, I was thinking about the cases of teachers who have in some cases litigated their right not to use certain pronouns yes. because they consider it a violation of their, in some cases, religious freedom because they have a religious objection to that. I think that's emerged in a couple of cases. No, no, definitely. Um, but I take your point. Parents who are objecting to this are doing it much more in terms of a language of what's safe for their children or Correct. what is, as you put it, common sense for themselves. And indeed, even some of them are putting it in the language of science, <laughs> quite, you know, quite, quite apart from religion. Right. And the same, the same goes for these, these, uh, quote, book banning campaigns, right? I haven't heard Moms for Liberty say that, you know, the book Genderqueer or, uh, you know, a Toni Morrison novel, um, you know, insults the majesty of heaven. Right. What I've heard them say is, you know, this is inappropriate for children, not just my child, but your child, which is significant. Right. And in some cases, it's going to, again, to your point, harm them by, you know, introducing sexual themes and sexual ideas or other kinds of ideas that they can't handle or shouldn't be exposed to. But I haven't heard a lot of religion in that. As is so often the case in our history, the tools that are used may change hands depending on, on what they need to accomplish. And, you know, speaking of the grand sweep of history, John, I'd like to, in sort of uh, the last phase of this really good conversation, ask you uh, sort of to step back and look at the, the really, really big picture, which is whether the culture wars change from era to era and are about different things, or if in some very fundamental sense, they aren't always about the same thing, which is the impact of modernity on society and the inevitable tension between what's traditional or perceived to be traditional and the new. And the reason I thought about that is because of a quote you provided in your book from Patrick Buchanan, who, of course, is the political ideologue on the right, who announced the culture war uh, in his speech at the 1992 uh, Republican National Convention. And the quote, which is more recent, was, 
as the culture war is about irreconcilable beliefs about God and man, right and wrong, good and evil, and is at root a religious war, it will be with us as long as men are free to act on their beliefs. You know, say what you want about Patrick Buchanan, but he had a talent for getting at the gritty essence of things sometimes. And, and I found myself nodding in agreement with that sentiment, not because I agree with Patrick Buchanan's uh, uh, substance, but that I think he's getting at something very real there, which is that these are profound moral questions that kind of take on a different coloration depending on the issues of the day, but they're kind of just permanently part of the modern world. I think that's definitely right. I think he was very prescient in that. But I also think that, uh, and this is what all historians think, right, is that they, they change over time, often quite abruptly. So the year after uh, that, the 1992 speech was when James Davison Hunter came out with his book called Culture Wars, um, which is really kind of the, the text that brought that term into our lingua franca. And incidentally, he borrowed it from Kulturkampf, which is the German term that they used to describe, and this is important, the battle between Protestants and Catholics over education in the 19th century. And what Hunter said uh, characterizes culture wars was he said a kind of inevitable, to quote uh, your language, battle between people that he called progressives and people that he called orthodox. And a progressive is somebody who thinks that truth, and to use your earlier term, reality, um, they change over time. They're culturally and historically specific, and there isn't necessarily an ultimate capital T truth. And the Orthodox are, of course, the people that think the opposite, right? Think that there is a capital T ultimate truth and that everything will fall apart unless we protect and defend it. But here's what I think is so interesting. I think that Hunter was both right and wrong. I do think that's a very useful characterization of the way we argue. But I, in my own experience, I'm just going to say it, the progressives I encounter at the university are among the most Orthodox people that I know. Right. If orthodoxy, if orthodoxy simply means like a fixation on a capital T truth that you will not um, question and most of all, you won't allow other people to question. I think there's a ton of orthodoxy all around us right now. Right. And I think it characterizes both sides. I would say that we don't have many progressives anymore, that almost all of us are becoming species of orthodox. And I think that's what's characteristic of a moment and really troubling is we don't have enough small p progressives in the way that Hunter described them. We're all moving to the orthodox side of the spectrum. Or small l liberals, uh, people who yeah. really genuinely not only say they believe in dialogue, discussion, debate, but actually practice what they preach in that regard. And right. uh, yes, I couldn't agree with you more. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast is that there needs to be much more space for that in our society. And I think it's really important that what you're doing, John, is trying to open some of that space in your classes at Penn and in the things that you write. Before I let you go, though, I want to ask you, and I like to do this with my guests, try and uh, find out a little bit more about their personal backgrounds. You you started out teaching, if I'm not wrong, in a very remote part of the world uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer. What has stayed with you about the process of education from that experience 
that you still apply today? Well, well, um, uh, how long do we have? Um, I, well, you're going to have to keep it a little short, but <laughs> <laughs> go I, ahead. I, I served in the Peace Corps in Hall in the early 80s, and I was a three-day walk from vehicular traffic. So I took a bus overnight outside of Kathmandu through the Trai, which is the plains that uh, you know uh, connect Nepal and India, to a place that was just south of the place in the mountains where my village was, and I walked north into the mountains. And there were a lot of people in my village that had never seen um, a non-Nepali. Some of the kids thought it was a ghost. It was a boot, which means ghost. Um, but I think the fundamental things that I learned were, first of all, just how many different ways there are to be human. You know, uh, I, was, I was thrown into a place where people had entirely different understandings of, to use your term, reality than mine. And I had to learn about that. And I had to learn to to a degree respected. And I say to a degree because I'm not a relativist. And so, you know, I don't, I don't approve, for example, of caste, uh, which was fundamental to the community that I lived with. But I gained an understanding of it and most of all, why it made sense to them. So I think that's the first thing. You know, my job as a scholar and as, a, as an educator is really to try to understand why a certain reality makes sense to somebody, even if I don't share it. Um, it's about finding out about other people, I think, fundamentally. Uh, the other thing that I'll say is I learned that about education, I'm actually not a relativist. I do think that there are some ways of teaching and ways of educating that are better than others. And, uh, you know, I was sent there as an English teacher. And the way English was taught in that part of the world at the time was through repetition. So, yobira loho, this is, this is a dog. Yokuka, no, sorry, yobira loho, this is a cat. Yokuka ho, this is a dog. So you knew you were getting near a school in Nepal when you could hear that chant. You just heard it, yeah. you know, reading from a mile away. And so I come in there and on the blackboard, which was incidentally a piece of wood with charcoal on it, I use a rock and I draw a cat. And I just say, what is that? And they said, in Nepali, you're And I said, no, that's a cat. And eventually I got them to say, that's a cat. And then eventually I got a kid to ask another kid, what is that? And have the first kid say, that's a cat. Then I'm drawing other things on the board. Um, they're asking each other questions. Then they're getting up there and they're drawing things on the board. And this was just better. Um, I don't think that you know I'm better or America is better in every way than uh, Nepal in 1983. But I think that method was better. And the reason is my students told me. You know, I mean, they found it the most magical thing in the world. To me, it was just intuitive. But I think it also made a kind of profound sense to them. And they told me that. So it's all about the students and what works for them. And I think you just so eloquently articulated the perspective we need more of in our public schools uh, and that you've stood for, I think, very doggedly in your career, which is that education is not, even though it's paid for by the adults, maybe through their taxes, it's not for the adults. It's for the next generation. And that if we listen more to them and we have a little more trust in them and in their ability to make good judgments, some of these other conflicts that we adults uh, perpetuate might turn out to be not so irreconcilable after all. John, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. You are really thoughtful on these questions. Your voice is really essential. And we're very fortunate to have had you on times like these. 